Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Cannabis has been around for a long time. Since legalization, stores have been selling products that contain higher amounts of the active ingredient tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. There's a lot we're still learning about how those higher amounts of THC affect our bodies and our minds. On White Coat Black Art, we interviewed a young man who experienced intensely negative mental health effects from high-potency cannabis. You can find it at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. So this week on The Dose, we're asking, what do I need to know about high-potency cannabis? Hi, Philip. Welcome to The Dose. Hello there. Pleasure to be here. How often do you treat patients who use high-potency cannabis? I work primarily with youth and young adults in what we call early intervention services for psychosis. With that, we have about over, you know, 80% of our youth and young adults who have exposure to cannabis, about 30 to 40% who may have a cannabis use disorder, and the majority of those would have been using high-potency cannabis. Can you give us a hi, my name is? Tell us what you do and where you do it. Just ad-lib. Hi, my name is Dr. Phil Thibault. I'm professor and the Dr. Paul Jansen Chair on Psychotic Disorders at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm also the Director of Research for the department and also have a few other hats, including being president of our national organization on early intervention programs for psychosis in Canada. Let's begin by asking a straightforward question. What do we mean by high-potency THC? I think people get confused sometimes when we talk about potency. And as you mentioned, it is related to the active or the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, the tetrahydrocannabinol, which we call THC. And so potency is really just the you know THC percentage by weight of the product. And so when we're talking about high potency, that bar has been moving over the years. And you, today we would say high potency product is anywhere above 15% THC. And how does that compare to your parents' or your grandparents' cannabis? As you mentioned, we look, we've seen the, the percentage of THC, the potency of product, really increase over the last 40 to 50 years. I mean, the native cannabis plant, the more natural plant, is only about 1% to 2% THC. And we've seen that increase over the years. I mean, even within Canada, our, our data from Health Canada has shown that you know, the average THC percent in the 1980s was around 3%. And around 2019, that was around 15%. And you know, even since then, we've seen that increase significantly so that, you know, the market share of cannabis, the potency of products that's being sold is above 20%, 25% and higher. And, you know, and what we're seeing, you know, here in Canada is reflective in other areas of the world as well. We've seen that increase in potency of product in the reports and studies out of the U.S., out of, out of Europe as well. So it is a, it is a global phenomenon too. Is the greater potency always the result of cultivation, or are you seeing patients, clients who've consumed other synthetic products? It's a bit of both. Over the years, the potency of the sort of the dried flower 
is more of a result from you know plant genetics and specific breeding within plant biology as well to produce a product that has higher potency THC. You can only go so far with that. And then some of the other products that we get on the market are derived in other ways as well. Then you may get into the products like shatters and waxes, which are about 80 to 90% THC. So that's fairly significant. And then, as you mentioned, we also do have the synthetics. So that's not related to, you know, the parent plant at all. This is, you know, it's been derived in a lab. And that's very significant. It's a different product altogether, but very, very high potency for synthetics as well. So what are the usual psychoactive effects of high potency THC? You know, people use cannabis because of the psychoactive THC. It gives you that euphoria. Basically, with a high-potency product, that is just all exaggerated, right? So it, it is a more exaggerated effect than what you would get with a lower-potency product. So the same thing that you would get with a low-potency product, but it's just more of it, and it can last longer as well. And what are the toxic effects of high-potency THC? I know you're not a toxicologist, and maybe you're just hearing this from your patients, or maybe, you know, if your patients end up in the emergency department. I guess it depends on how you def- want to define toxicity as well. We know that high-potency product can increase risk for some negative outcomes, specifically with some negative outcomes around mental health and addictions as well. To me, that still falls within toxicology and, and toxic states as well. You know, a lot of research has shown that, you know, that increased potency is actually increases your risk for development of a cannabis use disorder. For example, if somebody starts using cannabis with a high-potency product, they're about even three times higher risk of developing a cannabis use disorder than somebody who starts with a lower potency product. And of course, the other concerning thing too is that there's a lot of significant research that has shown that association between high potency product and the development of a psychotic disorder. So to me, this is still toxic effects of high potency product. What about anxiety or agitation? That definitely can play a role as well. Now, interestingly, if you look at some recent systematic reviews on this whole topic, They've looked at all the studies that have looked at anxiety and depression with respect to potency and low-potency product. The findings are still a little bit mixed, but that also indicates that there are still some people where high-potency product can actually worsen anxiety and even worsen depression as well. And that's interesting because, of course, one of the reasons why people consume cannabis products is to not just get a bit of a buzz, but to get relaxed. And when I think relaxed, I think reduction in their anxiety. No, that's... Very true. And you get into some good discussions with people, with patients about that very same cycle. Is that That's initially why they started. But then what they're finding that over time, actually, is their anxiety is worsening. And oftentimes it is related to, you know, being sold and, and maybe not having the right knowledge about the product that they're purchasing and, and realizing afterwards that, hey, this is really high potent product. Maybe that's why my, my anxiety is actually getting worse. As you've mentioned, high-potency products are generally recognized as being over 15% THC, containing over 15% THC. But from what I've seen, there is no recognized definition of high-potency. Very true. And this is actually even a a bit of an issue with respect to some of the research as well. You know, how do we define high-potency product? Back in the 80s, when generally it was around 3% THC, we would have called high-potency product anything around 10%. And some of the studies out of Europe have called high-potency product anything above 10% as well. I just see that bar moving. And now with market shares being 20 to 25% THC, are we continually going to change that bar as as to what THC high-potency product will be? And that is one area that we need to work on is really defining what we call high-potency. 
generally in the research and clinical literature as well, there's a general understanding about 15% being that line. As an emergency physician, I see patients who've taken much higher potency THC, and it's in that environment, the emergency department, that we see patients who have more of the physical effects of consuming high-potency THC. So we see a lot of patients who have nausea and vomiting, and there's this thing called the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, people who are vomiting, and you know it's hard to relieve. And we're scratching our heads because we're looking for, for things like appendicitis, gastroenteritis, a bowel obstruction, have they had prior surgery, and, and none of that is true. And then you go back, and then the penny drops, and you ask them, have you been consuming marijuana? And the answer is yes, I have. And have they increased their consumption? No, great point. And actually, my research group here, one thing we're doing is is actually a large study looking at all-cause cannabis-related presentations to the emergency department. And that hyperemesis syndrome is definitely one thing that brings people to it. And interestingly, we're not quite clear yet on what are some of those risk factors for developing it. It's not necessarily new and, and some people it's more chronic, but it can be severe enough to bring people to the emergency department. The one thing I think, and you brought up a point there, is that, you know, you, it was after the fact, you know, the emergency room doctors maybe have gone back to ask about cannabis use for any presentations. And I think, you know, with legalization within the Canadian setting, within the emergency departments, we're kind of now just getting there where we're asking those questions in the emergency department and, and being able to see, you know, what effects, you know, this cannabis use can be on their presentations for all causes, both physical and mental health. Another thing that we see in the emergency department are patients who push their use of cannabis to what I would call extremes. And some of them will have high blood pressure, delirium, and in a small minority of cases, seizures. I haven't seen a patient who's had cannabis-induced seizures, but my reading of the literature suggests that that's possible. It's definitely possible. I will say it's somewhat rare, and oftentimes we will see that more with synthetics. Because again, the synthetic cannabis is a different kind of product altogether. Uh, we will see there's incidents of seizures, but also of stroke and actually even death with the synthetics as well. We're coming to a point from the standpoint of toxicity, how much THC is too much? So many variables are at play there too, because you also have to consider it's high potency product. Is it just on one occasion or is it regular use of high potency THC? Is it the 20%? Is it the shatters and waxes that are 80 to 90% THC? And that is also the individual's response to cannabis as well, because as you know, people respond differently to cannabis. Really, the education that we need to get out there is that the whole idea around taking cannabis is that it's supposed to be a pleasurable experience. If it's not, well, then you're probably at risk for some significant negative outcomes. Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. Certainly when I've done columns on the adverse effects of cannabis, I get significant pushback from people who say that cannabis is safe because it's been around for centuries. I'm sure you've heard that before. Yes. And generally cannabis can be safe as well. Now, keeping in mind, there's a few things there too, is that it's been around for centuries, true enough. 
but the product that we're using today that's available to our youth and young adults and to the population today is completely different than even what it was 10, 15 years ago. It's a bit of a leap to make that assumption that it's the same for centuries because no, it is a different product with respect to potency that exists and is around today as well. In addition to there being different products, there are many ways these days to consume cannabis, not just smoking as it used to be, or primarily you have edibles, you have vaping. To what extent does the method of consumption bear on adverse effects? You're right. Mostly, and still the majority of the way people use cannabis, if you look at our Canadian cannabis surveys that the federal government does per year, still the most common use is smoking, like smoking dry flower product. But the rates of vaping are increasing, plus as well, the rate of edible use too. And each one of those has some things to consider. For example, edibles, you know, it just takes longer to get the effect. So some people who are not used to using edibles may feel that they're not getting the effect that they want and take more and continue to take more and eventually may get into that toxic state because they've just taken way too much. For vaping, unfortunately, most of the product that you get within the vaping constituents are high potency product. So that's where you get 80 to 90% THC in the vaping cartridges. So that is that increased risk as well. And one thing we haven't mentioned, of course, is just with lung health as well, right? With any kind of inhaling. Is it fair to say right now, Philip, that we don't have a lot of data on the impact of vaping THC, for example? And, and maybe there's a lot of variation in, in the quantities of THC that will be consumed through vaping? I definitely agree with that. There has been some good research going on, but we definitely need much more. Uh, we need the funding for this research to, to occur. And I think we've seen that evolution within the research into this as well, is that you know, we've moved on from just using cannabis or not using cannabis. Now we need to include in all those studies how much cannabis you're using, potency of product, and being able to really, for us to fine-tune our understanding of effects of cannabis use. How does the impact of high-potency THC affect young people in a way that's, say, under the age of 25, that may be different to people who are over the age of 25? Interesting. We always come up with that 25-year number as well. Really what we're talking about is the effect of cannabis on that still developing brain because neurodevelopmentally, our brain isn't really done with its development until we hit that mid-20s kind of mark. All the the myelination, all the kind of connections that are happening with all the different parts of the brain all occurs during that time period. And adolescence is a huge part of brain development, the kind of final maturational processes. So this is why there's a lot, been a lot of attention on the effects of cannabis within that youth and young adult population. And true enough, what we see is that, again, high potency product does affect that risk of developing a cannabis use disorder. And actually, even the severity of the cannabis dependence is related to what potency of product that you start with and using during during adolescent young adults. And with respect to mental health, we've seen that use within youth and young adults being quite related to the development of psychosis and psychotic disorders as well. It's interesting what you were saying about age 25. Obviously, that's an arbitrary figure. You know, my reading of the studies that have been done that have looked at the impact of THC on the developing brain compared to the fully developed brain is that by choosing age 25, the researchers have chosen a conservative figure. By the age of 25, the vast majority of people have had full brain development. That's true. Yes. We're coming to some practical questions right now. 
and to some bottom lines. So when it comes to high potency THC, what would you say are safe consumption guidelines? Yes. So I think when it comes to yeah, the high potency product, what we always tell, I think there's two ways of doing it. I mean, it's about informing you know, our public health guidelines, but as well, even any policies on cannabis sales as well. And, and this comes into both of these as well. The lower the potency, the better it is with respect to negative outcomes, right? So if you can use a product that first is below 20%, but even if you can get it lower below, you know, 15 and 10%, what you're doing is you're reducing your risk of potentially negative outcomes. So we're not necessarily telling people to not use. We want people to be able to use in a responsible way and to have the knowledge to ensure that they don't have any of these particular negative outcomes. So potency of product, we always say, you know, just be able to know, to be able to ask where you buy and what you buy and knowing what your THC potency is of the product that you're buying and just the lower, the better. And what about people whose brains are developing? I'm referring to younger people, of course. There are a few sort of low risk guidelines that exist. And usually for younger people, we say, you know, if you can not use, first of all, that's probably better for you. But as well, if you're in that youth and young adult population and you're using, stick to the low THC potency product. And in addition to that, be careful of how much you use as well. Canada still has a high rate of daily or almost daily use within a young adult population. And we have to think and educate to move away from that as well. In your practice, do you find yourself diagnosing substance use disorder with respect to THC so that you actually diagnose THC use disorder in some of your patients? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So we'll say cannabis use disorder. It's not uncommon within our particular population. And how do you define that? There is specific sort of criteria to be met to get a diagnosis of cannabis use disorder. Those criteria are basically, it's a little bit of a laundry list as well, but generally it's any kind of problematic pattern of cannabis use that can lead to some significant impairments in various areas. Such as? Well, such as psychosocial functioning, how you're doing at school, how you're doing at work, but as well as having that craving or strong desire, continued use despite negative outcomes, but as well as things like tolerance and withdrawal symptoms as well. How do you encourage people at risk to cut down on THC potency and more frequent use? I guess we could divide that into those who have a defined cannabis use disorder and those who don't. True. I mean, that's the first thing. So if, if somebody comes with a cannabis use disorder, obviously there's some severity there with respect to functioning, and we have to try and get that individual out of that cannabis use disorder. And and then we talk about harm reduction techniques, right? And how you can approach that. And sometimes the very first harm reduction technique that we we use, which is just trying to get some people to buy from licensed sellers, just because we know then there's better control and knowledge about actually what the THC percentage is of the product that they're buying. Sometimes that's just the first step. And once we know that, then we can start looking up other products and being able to say, okay, let's just look at what's available at a lower THC potency range, and we'll sort of address in that way. And keeping in mind, there's always the potency end of things, but there's also around that daily or almost daily use that we have to try and address as well. Do you have any tips for parents of young people who uh, may be uh, consuming greater and greater amounts of cannabis on ways to, to get them to cut back? There's actually some really good literature there within our Canadian system as well for parents on how to talk to your kids about cannabis use. That exists to really allow parents to kind of develop a language, know what questions to ask, although difficult for parents sometimes, be able to know how to ask those questions in kind of a non-judgmental way, in a way that will 
allow you to have a conversation with your child versus that child, you know, kind of putting up the wall and not having that conversation as well. Part of this too is just having the conversation around the dinner table. I mean, at being upfront and asking about cannabis use. Hey, what do you use? What kind of product? Where are you buying? Where are you getting it from? Then having that knowledge to say, hey, you know what? Be careful of how much you're using the frequency, but as well as that potency of product. And also knowing for the parents to know sort of what resources may exist in their community that may help further that education as well for their youth and young adult. We've been talking about high potency THC uh, most of the time here, but when it comes to lower potency THC, there are precautions that, that people should take. If we look at the things or the variables, what we say that lead to some negative outcomes, one that is there is, again, that amount of use, right? So even at low potency cannabis, still daily or almost daily use will lead to potentially lead to more negative outcomes. So that is still something to consider as well. And of course, you know, one precaution is not to use and, and drive immediately afterwards. Of course, yeah. Not only just driving, but sort of workplace as well if somebody's within a particular job or situations where cannabis use is going to affect not only their, their focus and attention, but even sort of manual hand dexterity skills as well. Well, Dr. Philip Thibault, uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on uh, cannabis and cannabis use disorder with us on The Dose. My pleasure. Dr. Philip Thibault is a professor in and the director of the Department of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University. Here's your dose of smart advice. One of the key active ingredients in cannabis is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. The potency of cannabis is generally expressed as the percentage of THC contained in the product. Naturally occurring cannabis plants contain 1-2% to THC, and genetically modified plants are cultivated to boost the percentage. The cannabis that was around from the 60s to the 80s generally contained 1-5% to THC. Today's versions are often much more potent. There is no universally accepted definition of high-potency THC. In general, anything above 15% is considered highly potent. And today, there are a lot of commercially available products that contain THC greater than 20%. High-potency can cause adverse effects. These include nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, high blood pressure, anxiety, agitation, delirium, and seizures. Another serious adverse effect is called cannabis-induced psychosis, whose symptoms include hearing voices or auditory hallucinations, feelings of being persecuted, grandiosity, and depersonalization, which is the feeling of being detached from one's body or mental processes. Young men, and especially those with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia, are more likely to experience cannabis-induced psychosis from consuming high-potency THC products. Another important variable is the method of consuming cannabis. We know less about the toxic effects of consuming high-potency edibles and vape. But, for instance, some studies suggest that vaping high-potency THC products may produce more adverse effects than smoking the same dose. Several variables may determine whether you have adverse effects, so it's difficult to figure out a dosage or THC potency that's universally safe. Adverse effects do not happen to everybody who uses high-potency THC products. In general, use products that contain the lowest possible potency of THC. Because THC has a greater effect on the developing brain, young people should postpone their use of THC products until they reach the age of 25. Because of the risk of cannabis-induced psychosis, young men under the age of 25 with a personal history or a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia 
should avoid high-potency THC altogether. Finally, depending on frequency of use, most forms of THC can cause drowsiness and impairment behind the wheel. When consuming cannabis, wait at least six hours before driving a car or operating dangerous machinery. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions answered, our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen. This edition of The Dose was produced by Samir Chabra. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.